Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Nina Pantic. My usual co-host, Irina Falcone, is absent for this episode as she works on her comeback to the Pro Tour. Our special guest is Brett Haber. Haber and I caught up in L.A. We talked about how he got his start in the broadcasting industry. Haber has worked as a broadcaster for over 30 years, and he's going on eight years at Tennis Channel. He has covered the Olympics, football, basketball, golf, and of course, tennis. He's also the MC of the Newport Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Brett started in the 1990s at ESPN Sports Center, and he has a lot of lessons to tell us about confidence. Let's get into that interview. All right, Brett Haber, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Hi, Nina. I am so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm so glad that you and I could get together outside of a gas station. You know what? That was a unique experience, (laughs) and I think we should maybe explain it a little bit. So I will just say that um, at the end of the Miami tournament this year, uh, I took you and Chanda out to dinner, and I was looking for a place to go in Miami, and I asked Wertheim, and he goes, dude, I've got the spot. There's a gas station not far from Coconut Grove, and I know that sounds weird, but it's like a tapas place, and it's a gas station, a convenience store during the day, but if you go in the back, it's like a secret speakeasy thing. And I was like, really? And I went, and it was, was it good? It was amazing. But it was a gas station, and totally. getting that email was was unusual. It felt weird. Nina, we, we've, o- we've only known each other about a year, but uh, if you've gotten to know anything about me, uh, unusual is uh, kind of standard operating procedure. And that's why we're here. We want to talk about <laughs> Brett Haber, the famous broadcaster. No. Uh, my first thought is broadcaster and sportscaster, tennis guru, football guru. What do you refer your, to yourself as? I don't uh, refer to myself. I find people who refer to themselves are generally narcissistic uh, maniacs. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously joking around. Um, yeah, I'm, you can come f- to tennis broadcasting from two sides of the coin, right? You can either be one of our color analysts and be a, a former player or coach or you know someone who's walked in the shoes of the people that we're covering, or you can be a professional broadcaster. And uh, that, that's the side that I come from as a host play-by-play and I um, go back to having been a broadcaster since I was 16. Uh, was my first gig on on a kids show on NBC, and then uh, through some local stations, through a few years anchoring Sports Center at ESPN, and that's where uh, I had my first. Uh, well, I was the tennis correspondent there. That in addition to doing Sports Center, I traveled around and did some of the news of the day stuff at the Slams, and then it just grew uh, from there, kind of in a in a parallel universe to my. Uh, other stuff that I was doing in life. When did you know you wanted to be in broadcast? Yeah, that, that's, I, I kind of always did. And I think if you asked a lot of guys who do what I do, they, they all have similar takes on the story of being at home and watching games and being sort of a, a sports fan in general, and then taking your hairbrush and mop, you know, calling a game in your bedroom or calling one into a tape recorder. And I did that growing up in New York City. I was a huge uh, Rangers fan and a Yankees fan. 
and I would score the games at home. And I was such a nuts Rangers and Knicks fan that my friends and I would watch the games on TV every night. And I, I lived on the east side of Manhattan. And whenever a Ranger or a Nick would get hurt, uh, they would get taken to Lenox Hill Hospital, which is on 77th Street between 3rd and Lex. And so if, if a player got hurt badly enough to where they had to go to the hospital to get x-rays, my friends and I, about five or six of us, would jump on our bikes and try to beat the ambulance from Madison Square Garden to the hospital because every once in a while the, the player in question would take their jersey off and give it to a kid. And uh, I have at home somewhere in a box Rayo Rutzelainen's jersey number 29 from when he like broke his collarbone and had to get right. So that was our deal. Every night we were riding the bikes up the uh, east side to try to get to Lenox Hill before the ambulance. That's incredible. That's so, I mean, like get a hobby, right? I mean, it's okay. It's a, if you were doing that now, that would be weird. But as a child, that showed that you had the motivation and the drive and the passion. <laughs> it just mean, it meant I was a sports fan geek, like, like everybody else. And, um, I, I lucked out in a, in a couple of ways. And, and the first one was that I, I ended up winning, Winning is probably the wrong word, but I, I, they had a talent search for a kid reporter in my school. And there was a show on NBC in the mid-80s called Main Street, and it was hosted by Bryant Gumbel. And it was a kid's version, or they, they sort of framed it as a kid's version of 60 Minutes. And so it was a magazine show with three stories per hour, the correspondents were kids and the stories were aimed at kids and the producers came through my school and they, uh, they went to a communications class that I was in. I, I wouldn't for a minute represent that I had any kind of skill set when I was 15 or 16 years old. They literally were and I went to public school looking for a kid who could put three sentences together without drooling on himself. And I, that was a low bar and I, I cleared that bar and they picked me out of this thing. And so I, I was on this show when I was 16. And that was my first taste of what real broadcasting was like. And it was a real, like, I was a kid and didn't know what I was doing. But the producers were real and the camera people were real and the writers and editors were real. And I got a sniff of that. And uh, I, I never wanted to do anything else. But it sounds like you had a passion for a lot of sports. How did you get sucked into the tennis? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, 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 always, I grew up in New York, so I grew up going to the Open. And I grew up uh, later in my high school and college years sneaking into the Open. Um, in 1991, which was my senior year in college, um, I guess I had graduated because the Open's August, September, so I was back home in New York. And at that time, this is before Arthur Ashe Stadium was built, so Armstrong was the main stadium. And the way it was oriented, um, the catering kitchen for the kitchen that, that uh, cooked all the food for the luxury suites the back doors of that kitchen opened up onto Flushing Meadows Park. And so when the catering chefs wanted to take a cigarette break, they would go out the back door and they'd like lean and the doors would be open. And you learned after a while that if you brought a $20 bill around the back through Flushing Meadows Park, you could slide a 20 to an enterprising catering chef on a smoke break and they'd let you in through the kitchen and then you could just fend for yourself and get into the stadium. And that's how I got into the 91 Connors Crickstein match. And I was there for all five sets of that and it, to this day, is the most captivating sporting event, any sport that I've ever been to. And I felt like I knew those people that I was sitting next to who I'd never met before. But we'd been through the war together of, of that great match, which, of course, was replayed in every rain delay for the next 20 years. So is it safe to say the U.S. Open is one of your favorite places to cover? So it certainly has the most nostalgia for me having grown up in New York City. I would say that 
um, every one of the slams has its own flavor, right? You know, New York is, you got to want it, right? You got to want it as a player. You got to want it as a fan. You got to deal with the traffic and the commute out to Queens and you got to deal with the noise and you got to deal with the smells from the burger grills that are going off and you got to deal with everything. And and like, I think only players who have a personality that can kind of gel with that end up winning for the most part. Oh, I think Marin Cilic was a counter example. He's kind of a very uh, low key, mellow, subdued guy who somehow conquered New York. But, uh, so I love the energy of New York because I'm a New Yorker at heart. I think if you pressed me, um, I love Australia because, A, I think everybody's always in a good mood in Australia. It's the beginning of the year. Happy slam. Nobody's lost yet. It's beautiful weather in the middle of our winter. And I also, I, I love Paris. I, I speak decent French, not fluent, but kind of pseudo-conversational. Um, and I just, I love Paris. And then London, I, I think, is... It's summer camp for our business, right? Everybody who's in the village has coffee and breakfast at the same five places in the village in the morning. Everybody sees each other, players, coaches, media, agents, girlfriends, wives, boyfriends, husbands, and every, it's like, oh, hi, hi, how are you? And I just, that, if you're into having a sense of community in this sport, I, I like that feel of uh, kind of riding the bike through Wimbledon Village and seeing everybody. That's fun. For me. So I didn't really answer your question. I said all four of them. That's okay. I think you can say whatever you want on this podcast. It sounds though like you have, you had a very natural progression into your career at a young age and it sounds like you have the dream job. Are there any parts of the gig that you have that are not fun, that are hard and that you hate? So none of, none of it I hate. Um, and I would, I, I would be cautious about saying that any of it's hard because I think um, there are people who have hard jobs that if I ever said that I had a hard job would roll their eyes at me so hard that they would roll back in their head. I don't have a hard job, but I, but I also think in all seriousness that anybody who um, has ambition and wants to achieve a certain level in any profession, not, not media exclusively, um, puts in a level of work that allows them to try to distinguish themselves. So I don't think being a broadcaster is hard in the classic sense of that word, but I think people who excel at it uh, do a level of preparation that can be time consuming and arduous maybe is a better word than hard. And so I, I try to be the guy that is the most prepared. And I, I, I take that really seriously because I didn't play the game at a, at a high level. I mean, I play the game now, but I, I didn't play it professionally. I didn't play it in college. I didn't play it at a high level. But think about who I sit next to every day. I sit next to Jim Courier and Lindsay Davenport and Martina Navratilova and Tracy Austin and Paul Anacone and Mark Knowles and James Blake and on down the line to our roster of analysts. And I take very seriously what they do and the responsibility that I have to be the conduit between them and our viewers. And so if I'm going to get the privilege of that chair, I better be prepared. I better ask them the right question. I better be able to fill in the gaps. They're going to tell us how and why. I better be ready with who, what, where, and when, and the right question to sort of spur them to give the best answer that they can give. And I, I, I take that super seriously. I mean, that doesn't sound easy to me. That sounds like a very, very tight balancing act. And the preparation means that you're doing a lot of homework that we're not mm-hmm. seeing. I, kinda, some, I think people assume broadcasters just show up to set and talk, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of homework. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, if you're... It, it, 
if you're doing your job well, you give the illusion that it's uh, the information that you have and the thoughts that you convey are off the cuff or natural and the, the, the give and take between you and your partner or partners should sound conversational and not contrived. But for sure, yeah. I mean, I have a database that, that I've created, which is now up to probably between four and 500 players that I used to update on sort of a quarterly basis before the slams, maybe before Indian Wells. And I've, I've decided that it's now easier to do a half hour to an hour of work every day, 365 days a year and update every result of every match into my database of players. So when I get to a tournament, I'm, I'm ready for whoever might play. And then I'm, I'm constantly creating new files in that database for obviously up and coming players and, I, I try to, um, you know, have that at my fingertips. Be, and, and I guess the discipline is doing all the, the research and being prepared and then keeping the gun in the holster and having the discipline to only use 2 or 3% of what you have until it becomes relevant. Because the tennis on television, it's not radio, it's, tele, it's television. The pictures speak volumes. So... Um, I think younger broadcasters, and certainly I was guilty of this uh, earlier in my play-by-play career, make the mistake of feeling compelled to use what they prepare. And that's a mistake. And trying to prove that you're the smartest person in the room is a lose-lose. You do that over time. And uh, I have learned and had really good teachers and people who help me discipline myself to this day. And, uh, you know, learning when to use it when to keep it in the bag, and uh, when one thing is relevant and another thing isn't, I think it is a big part of, of doing it right. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at New Balance Hello, listeners. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Brett Haber. Brett has a bunch of stories to tell us about how he got his start in the broadcasting world. Keep listening. Did you have a, a first big break, a memorable moment where you thought, hey, you know what? I've made it. I know you started as a teen, so there was a lot of winning early on. We talked about you winning that contest, but was there a, a day where you thought, hey, man, this is, this is good. I've got it. So... Uh, I don't think you ask Rafa, right? Rafa says, you know, when I remember an interview we had with him on tennis channel, I think it was back in 2014. When did you realize you were great? And Rafa said, I, I, I haven't. And obviously Rafa is one of the most self-effacing sort of humble champions. And his work ethic is predicated on, I don't know if it's an insecurity or just sort of a, a need to feel constantly prepared. So no, I, I don't know that I ever made it or that, I mean, I, I feel happy that I am where I am and I'm, I'm, I feel lucky to do this for a living. I, getting to sports center was a big, um, that was a big crossroads in my career. And I got there young at 24. And this was at a time in the early and mid nineties where ESPN was much smaller and there, there wasn't even ESPN news yet. Uh, ESPN news launched while I was there between 94 and 98 ESPN two, I think was just starting. Um, but there were really only 10 or 12 of us 
that did Sports Center on any kind of regular rotation. So I felt like the fishbowl was more uh, acute in those days. And, and basically five days a week, it was me and Craig Kilborn doing the 2 a.m. Sports Center. And every now and then I'd get to fill in on the 11 p.m. Sports Center when either Dan Patrick or Keith Olbermann was out. And the 6 p.m. was uh, Robin Roberts and Charlie Steiner and Bob Lee and a little Gary Miller and uh, you had Carl Ravitch in there on Baseball Tonight and Steve Levy and a couple other guys. But I mean, there was really ju- – Mike Tirico was in there occasionally, but he was already off on a play-by-play career that everyone knew was going to be huge. But it was a small group, and we were doing that every night, and it was the show of record. And I learned – that was my grad school. I, I learned so much in Bristol. I felt like after I was – I had spent a couple of years there, I, I had been in every – situation that you could be in as a live sportscaster and live to tell about it. And, uh, boy, it just, it, it, it's like anything, right? You, you get confidence from reps. So I felt like I, however many hundreds of sports centers I did, I just felt at ease. And, uh, you didn't, I mean, I, I taught, was in full panic the first night I did sports center screamed at the top of my lungs to like a primal scream in the five minutes before we went on the air. Cause I had like 10 days to prep and I was getting, did the show with Kilborn and he never looked up. I sat down in the chair. I was getting ready. It was like, I got there way too early, like 15 minutes before the show. And I was panicking and I just let out a scream and he never looked up. He goes, uh, just checking, bud, are you going to do that every night? And, and that broke the tension. And it was, but yeah, sports center was a big, um, that was a big thing for me. I mean, you mentioned Rafa and like the repetition part. Mm-hmm. I think everyone always says to be good at something, you have to hit it like 10,000 shots. There's all these stats. Malcolm and Gladwell, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in your case, it sounds like you've done, thousands upon thousands of shows and learned almost by doing right more than studying. And was there a lot of, did you learn to bounce back from mistakes? It seems like you don't make mistakes ever. Oh my, well, that's, that's silly. Nina, that's silly. <laughs> I make mistakes all the time. And, but I think it's a great, um, it's a great point that you raise because I think that it does come from reps. And I think that confidence is one thing that's essential in a performance business, which this is, and I think that confidence is the one thing in life that you can't fake. You can't pretend to be confident. You either are or you aren't. And I, that manifested itself for me a lot of times when I would be, I I spent years in local news in New York and DC and we would have interns every semester. and, And the reward for the intern forever in this business everywhere is that at the end of the semester, you get to make a resume tape for yourself, right? You get to sit down on the set and whatever the sports cast was that aired that night for four minutes, you get to do your version of it. You're the anchor and we give you a tape to take back to school. And that's your tape that you use to try to get your first job and uh, loved seeing kids try to do that. Invariably with almost zero exception, uh, kids do it and suck. And it's not because they're not talented or they're not going to turn out to be excellent broadcasters. Many of them do and have. It is impossible to do that once with all the pressure of knowing that you have one shot and no experience to give you that underlying confidence that you know what you're doing to nail it. It's impossible. And so kids would do it and they'd, they'd flame out or they'd flub it or they'd give up or they'd crash and burn and or they'd do a, you know, boom goes the dynamite kind of thing. And they'd, they'd come off dejected and I'd be like, don't forget it. Don't worry about it. That's the first of many. The only way to do it is by doing it. And however you get your first job by hook or by crook, that's where you'll do it five nights a week and you'll get the reps and you'll develop the confidence. And 
to your point that I don't make mistakes. That's a complete fallacy. The difference is that I've been doing it for so long that I don't get shaken when I make mistakes. And I think that most broadcasters would tell you that I'm confident enough in what I'm doing that I'll make the mistake, but it won't, I won't freak out and compound it. I go, you know what, that I blew it, but I'll be fine tomorrow or I'll be fine in the next segment. Whereas if you don't have that sort of institutional overtime confidence, you make the mistake and you go, oh my God, I'm going to do that again. And then your world starts to crumble and it compounds itself. So I think it's really, it, it can only be developed organically and you can only gain confidence by doing it and failing and recovering from the failure. And some, that takes longer for some people than others. But I love that process. And in a way, when nothing goes wrong, anybody can do it. Maybe not anybody, but it's when it goes wrong. How calm can you stay? How much can you slow down the process to where you can think, solve the problem and get out of it versus being in a panic? So like, I, I, it's fun to watch kids sort of progress through that gain confidence over time. And I remember when that sort of started to happen for me and it wasn't until I, I got my, cause my first tape sucked also. And it was when I got my first job that I did it night after night. And I was really diligent about watching tapes and critiquing myself and trying to get better. And slowly it started to happen and, and you gain that confidence. So oh, don't, don't you think, right? I mean, I mean, it makes perfect sense because it also sounds like something that translates to everything else people do. It's like totally, the more you do totally. it, the better you get. And then watching yourself back, was that a challenge? You, mm. said, you know, watching tapes of some of yourself the first few times is tough. And then critiquing yourself and then yeah. being like, wow, it was terrible. Well, Have yeah. you ever done a little throwback and been like, ooh, what was I doing? Uh, for sure. I, I, and I have, I have great, I have a box full of tapes. Unfortunately, <laughs> the formats of the, of the tapes have changed so many times that I can't, I have three quarter inch tapes. I have beta tapes. I have DVC pro tapes that I don't have a machine to put them in anymore. So at some point I will have to go to some service that can transfer all of those to Save a thumb them, drive for yes. me. And, but I have them in a box. But yeah, I have some uh, that are on video and that are on an old VHS machine that I have in my basement. And yeah, I'm a disaster. And um, and and then you, it's funny when you plug in, because there's also clips of me on ESPN online and they pop up in like a 30 for 30 every now and then. I hope my... Twitter goes mad and people text me, dude, I saw you in a 30 for 30. You were so young. I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, I remember being that age and, and um, being, you know, everything's a progression. I, I was what I was supposed to be when I was 24, 25, 26. And I, I think I am what I'm supposed to be now. Um, and uh, I found my place here, which has been the greatest blessing uh, of my career. Cause this is, um, this is even when I was doing Sports Center, I always wanted to do the tennis remotes at ESPN and I could not crack it. And um, I did a couple of ESPN International shows with people, but I, you know, and, and so this is what I always, even though every kid that does sports wants to do Sports Center, I was doing Sports Center and wanted to do this. Is there anything left that you want to do? Oh my God, yeah, of course. There's more. I mean, it sounds like you're. What am I dead already, Nina? I mean, <laughs> that's it. I've, the ambition's over. I'm that. Cl I mean, do I look that close to the grave? That you look great. You look great. I, I wasn't fishing for that, but I, I, yeah, I have ambitions. I mean, um, I would really like to host a some sort of podcast that ad aired on the international version of Tennis Channel. I, I always thought about that as you know, a, a destination. Mm -hmm. um, I, I look at TC Live as sort of a midway point. 
But if I could, if I could do in a small room uh, on the second floor of a building in Culver <laughs> City with a yellow placard on an easel, a podcast with two people. Um, sorry, I just, <laughs> just wanted to see how long. I, I wasn't sure how long you go on for. I, I, I was going to let you keep going. Thanks. No, I, I mean, it's funny. Um, I want to see where we're going. Um, I mean, I, I do the Olympics for NBC, which is was a huge thrill, especially the first time I did it in 2012 when the tennis was at Wimbledon. Um, and to do play-by-play there for the first time. And then in 2016, I hosted the coverage. Um, and we NBC gives uh, puts all the tennis on Bravo. And then the network's devoted to tennis for the length of the, the tennis competition at the Olympics. So that was a thrill. I mean... There were things outside of sports that I probably aspired to earlier in my career that I may have given up on at this point, but I wouldn't say I would be. I would feel a little dead inside if I actually gave up on on some of my dreams. So I'm not going to let go of them. Okay, that's but, good. But, but right now, I want to see where Tennis Channel is going. We're in huge growth mode. The last three years have been incredible in terms of what we're doing compared to when I first started broadcasting matches here. We're moving into a new building, which is really exciting. We keep getting more rights to more tournaments. Our footprint is growing. Our studio footprint is growing. Um, You know, TC Live is a thing that didn't exist when I first started here. And now we do a three-hour pregame at the U.S. Open. We do all these postgames after center court coverage so many days out of the year. We have this immense infrastructure. We're, We're like, we were kind of a you know, a shoestring network when we started. We are legit. This is a, I mean, walk around this place, look at the editors, look at the screeners, look at the production facility. This is a real network with uh, close to 70 million subscribers and a huge fan base. And I think that we take very seriously, right? Being the, the, the caretakers of this sport in television, 365 days a year. And I think viewers are starting to catch on to that. And have the muscle memory now of tuning into us when it matters for our sport. I like. I'm. I'm really proud to be a part of that. I mean, as you should be, as we all are. But it. You also dabble in playing tennis, right? Oh my God! Please. What is your uh, what's the uh, USPTR NTPR rating? I, I'm. I'm a. I'm a crap player. Um, but I will tell you that I am currently. I'm glad you didn't have the camera rolling when I walked in here. I am limping this week because I tore two ligaments in my ankle last Tuesday taking a lesson. Playing tennis. Did you, a full fall? Oh, yeah. I mean, I went over on the ankle. I was, hey, I get to tell a tennis war story. I was taking a lesson back home in D.C. I live in Maryland. And I was running out to my forehand for a running forehand. And I went to plant my right foot to plant and hit it. And my right ankle just totally went over. And I, it felt to me, I don't know, we don't have a replay. It felt like it went 90 degrees over. I felt it pop. And it was the second most painful thing I've ever felt in my life. And I went to, I, I, the next day I went to see my orthopedist. I've had a few surgeries. And, uh, yeah, I tore two ligaments, which is, by, by the way, that's, maybe I'm over-dramatizing. Every time you sprain your it's ankle, it's a, it's a degree of tearing your ligaments. So, um, yeah, I, I can show. I'll show you the picture. It's black and I blue. Saw it. You saw the the Bigfoot photo. It is a Bigfoot. It's pretty cool. It's Bigfoot. Right? Yeah. No, that's a big. That's um, that's Sasquatch kind of foot. Can I ask what the most painful one is? Then is that inappropriate? Oh, God, it's a story that my friends know. I, I had a thing called compartment syndrome in my right leg, 
seven years ago. It's a thing where your leg swells up. I tore my calf playing volleyball. You play volleyball I, too. No, no, I was just on vacation playing beach volleyball in Mexico. It was not, I don't play volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> and it bleeds internally and it blows up your calf and it cuts off the surgery. You have to have surgery to relieve the pressure. It was a, it's a long story, but it was a, okay. week, a week in Mexico that I'll, I'll never get back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey listeners, this is the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Brett Haber. Haber has a lot to tell us about the importance of confidence. Let's keep listening. All right, the torn ankle, torn ankle ligament sounds yeah. sounds like you're gonna get through it though. Do, do you play regularly? And I know mm-hmm. there was a there was a bit of a back and forth with you and Bethany Maddox Sands. I know, you know, Beth and I have not settled this, and this goes back a couple of years. Where she, I don't know why, and we're friends, and she used to work for us a little bit when she was hurt after the horrible knee thing that she went through at Wimbledon. But out of the blue, Beth challenged me to a butts up serving contest, which we were gonna do. Where were we going to do it? We were going to do it in D.C., and then she ended up losing early. Like, she played her first-round match on the Sunday before the tournament, so it wasn't even – the main draw hadn't started, so we weren't even there. And then she left town. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that if we played this game that it would work out well for me. I'm not – and I'm not begging for Beth to, like, reissue the challenge because I would, in literal terms, get my ass kicked or served into. But – yeah, the gauntlet was laid down and it never happened. And I didn't run away from it. I was ready to take a beating from her and I did work on my serve. And I actually think in a way, this is an ideal contest for me because I'm a terrible target server. But if you gave me like a target as big as a human being or like, a, I mean, because I could miss pretty wildly, but I can hit it hard. I can't hit it any place in particular. But that I may I could have a shot like on five serves I might get close to her, so I don't know. But I, but please let's be clear, Beth. I'm not laying down any kind of gauntlet. I'm not suggest you're a professional. I am a chump, and it would not work out for me. So I don't want anyone to construe this with me, you know, taunting her or it's not like that at all. And plus, have you seen Justin? I mean, I ain't messing around. I mean that's. Her husband, yeah, yeah that's. Yeah. I mean, who is, by the way, the sweetest guy in the world? But could you imagine if I if I actually put three serves into her back? And that's I'm running. I I mean I'm hoping it happens in 2020. Once the foot heals up, maybe somewhere a destination, maybe Australia seems too soon. But I think it should be point, a ch- it should be a charity thing if it's going to happen. It right? should I think be. We should raise money for Bahamas relief or something. I like. like that. I like the idea. I like the idea just the connection of you and players having any kind of back and forth that's fun and even silly, anything totally. that shows that you guys have relationship because you do. You have all this time with players. Of course you're going to have friendships. It shouldn't be taboo. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a fine line and I I I never um it's interesting. I think invariably you get to know players because the circuit is small. It's it's a little community. I I, I never but I'm not a player, so I, I don't want to 
I'm, uh, there's the term in our business, and don't, you know, this is slightly indelicate, but you don't want to be a jock sniffer as a as a, a journalist or a broadcaster. You don't want to be the guy who's palling around with them or, or you know, kind of sidling up to them to try to curry favor. My, my job isn't to be their friends. My job is to be honest and fair about what they're doing on the court. Of, of course, it's, it's, it's unavoidable, and it's pl- very pleasant that you would become friendly over time with people that you interview all the time or you see in the restaurant or in the lounge or in the airport or in the hotel. Yeah, I mean, um, sure. And, and it's a lot of the Americans more than uh, the foreign players. And then there's also, you know, some people you interview over time and you, you click with them just on a personality basis. For, for example, um, I, I've always enjoyed interviewing and he just retired, Yanko Tipsarevich. I always felt like I had a really nice rapport with him. He was a really interesting cat. Allie Risk uh, is a player that I started interviewing when she was really young and just started to have a taste of success. And she gets the media and is so charming and, and easygoing. And so we've developed a, a friendship and, and her husband, Stephen, is, is obviously in the industry. And uh, so it was so great to see her have success at Wimbledon this past year. And the Americans from the Bryans to Isner, and you, we all host different charity events or exhibitions and you get to know them that way. And then I, I've done the... Um, Power shares now the Invesco series for a number of years. So a lot of the veteran players, the, the Legends players, the the Roddicks and the Blakes and the Philippuses and the you know down that ilk of, of player I, I've gotten to know just from being offline with them over the years. But uh, yeah, I, I mean it shouldn't. I don't. I don't think it's our goal to create relationships, but it's it's very pleasant and unavoidable. And it puts them at ease. I think there's something oh, yeah. you can tell. You can see it through the camera that you're at ease with. Maybe not every player, but they're comfortable, and I think that's a, a big part of being on being on camera is tough. It's not every player is used to it, and you got to be the one to help them in a way. Well, in some cases, right, and if for young players, you want to sort of usher them through the process if they're uncomfortable in the situation. I think with veteran players, it's a combination of things. Um, I think you want to illustrate to them that you know what you're talking about, and then you want to illustrate to them that you're not going to hurt them. And I think that there's a there's a trust factor that you know we're not in this to expose a player. We're not in this to dwell on the negative with players. I think we want to tell the truth. I think that we want to be honest because if we sugarcoat a player's situation, I think then we lose our integrity with the audience. So I'm not going to sit here and say that a guy who lost love and won had a great day. He or she knows that he didn't have a great day. We'll tell the truth about that performance. I think there's a difference between telling the truth and being overtly negative or being personal. I think you can um, critique a, a negative performance without being mean and without being personal about it. And I think that most of the athletes know that that's part of the deal, that, you know, being subject to an honest critique is part of being a professional athlete. You reap the benefits from the media when things go well and you have to face the music a little bit. When things don't go well, the, for us, it's it's about earning the trust of knowing that regardless of which way the, the scales are balanced on a given day, that we're going to be fair, that we're not going to be mean, and that we're going to have their best interest, I think, at heart, and that we're here to promote the sport. Um, we occasionally commit acts of journalism, <laughs> but um, we're, we're also, uh, you know, partners with uh, – professional tennis and we want to see it succeed. And that generally doesn't happen by tearing 
people down on purpose. Exactly. But when, whenever you're talking, the whole time you were talking in my head, I'm thinking Nick Curious, Nick yeah, Curious, yeah. Nick Curious. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you tell me, you, you deal, I am torn because he's a very complicated figure in my mind in this sport because I think that he is immensely talented. We all do. Maybe the biggest natural talent of his generation, but he is also, you know, clearly, and I, I think the measure of when you're saying something fair or unfair is would you say it to his face? And I think I would say this to his face, and I think that he would hear it with open ears because it's not an attack that he does not fulfill his potential all the time with his uh, inability to maintain himself emotionally. That's not a criticism. That's that's my interpretation. Does it make Nick a bad person? No. Does it? And, and by the way, who am I to determine whether Nick is happy or fulfilling what he wants to fulfill? You know, part of the narrative is, oh, he's squandering his gift. He's not fulfilling. He should have won a slam by now. He said to, okay, fine. That's up to him. If he's happy and he's making enough money to live comfortably, which I'm sure that he is, and he's uh, has enough time and resources to do the things with kids that he he wants to do, and he's great with that stuff, am I entitled to say no? You you need to want to do more. I don't know. I mean, I can be an honest broker and observe that he can be his own worst enemy at times. I think by and large, Nick is is a benign um, character, I think with a couple of exceptions. I think the Stan Wawrinka incident being one of those exceptions. I think most of the wounds he inflicts are self-inflicted. I don't think he's a hurtful guy. I think he hurts himself when he gets off track. And I think from the players that I've taught, one of the good kind of measuring sticks is how do other players view him? Now, I know he has beef with some players and stuff with Rafa has happened and stuff like I think he's pretty well liked in the locker room from what I've heard and from people that I've talked to. So I think that's a good measuring stick. If, P, if, if, his, if his contemporaries like him, then maybe he's, he's, a, he's a decent guy who's either misunderstood or, or, or hasn't matured enough emotionally to, to be the best version of himself yet. And yeah, he clowns and he, he acts a fool and he does things that I think probably in retrospect he sometimes regrets. I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think... If we if we critique that fairly, that he has he he has the grounds to criticize us if we're being honest, but not personal. And I think if we sugarcoat it too much and say that Nick's the greatest thing in the, and then the audience goes, wait a minute, I saw him act a fool at this match. You guys aren't being on. So I think we have to walk that line of telling the truth, but not being so hurtful that we alienate the players. And I think there's a line there. And I think if Nick is on, well, I think Nick's a fair bloke, uh, right? Uh, he's a fair dinkum guy, as they say. What I, do you say when he comes back and says, what do you know about tennis? You can't play. That's well, so, but it's your job. But so you it's your job what? to watch and cover. I can't play. I can't play. But it's your, you're the broadcaster. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to play. You and can't if, he, if he, He's entitled to his opinion. If he, if, if I, and by the way, we all make mistakes and we say stuff that maybe we, I think that it's okay, and I don't think that Nick is the kind of guy that lashes out at everyone who has something to say with it. If it's if it's well thought out and not personal, Nick knows who Nick is. I don't think Nick's under any delusions that he's he's. I think he's very honest, and he knows that 
He's not prepared to have a, a coach at this stage in his life, and he knows that he needs to be emotionally more buttoned up. And these aren't things that would come as a shock to Nick. He, he's he's a thoughtful guy. I think that I've not walked a mile in his shoes. I don't really know the family situation that he comes from and what pressures might originate from that. Um, I don't know what it's like to walk around the world as a famous athlete with the expectations of a nation on my shoulders. I don't know what it's like to have the media hyper scrutinize everything I do. So no, I haven't walked in his shoes. I do know that I, I think he makes it worse for himself sometimes, but I also know that there are few hotter tickets in this sport than a Nick Kyrgios match. And when he plays, I want to watch him. So yeah. I just, you know, I, I think it, as long as he gives us the, the, um, the room to be fair in talking about him, I think that we're inclined to treat him fairly. I, I mean, that, that's all I ever want to do. I just, I just, yeah, that period, full stop. All right, period, full stop. Period, full stop is uh, maybe where we're going to stop this episode. Wait, I want, but there's... Uh, was there more you want to talk? I mean, I guess my, no. was there anything else you wanted to cover? No, I, I mean, I'm here for you. I, I'm, I'm just concerned about the traffic on La Cienega going back to... It's not my problem. <laughs> what, what, where are you staying? Nearby. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you don't want to give that information out. Oh, God forbid. No, right. I, I, I just, I'm, uh, I'm super, uh, I'm super happy to talk with you, Nina. It's been an amazing pleasure and an honor to hear the story of Brett Haber on the Tennis.com podcast. It has. Thank you, Nina. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.